But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. The slam season is over. It is done. This has felt like an interminable two and a half weeks for me because I was (laughs) in New York for qualifying. Difficult for me to really grasp just how long this tournament was. Yeah, the the USTA guy who does the trophy presentations always says this three-week tournament. And it really is a full three weeks, if you include qualifying. It uh, it really has felt like it's taken forever. And conversely, I feel like the second week of a slam always got, goes by so quickly. Because if you miss a few matches here and there, it's like, well, you kind of missed everything. I do not share that. You don't. Okay. Sentiment. For example, we went to see Elton John here in Toronto on my birthday and missed some tennis. Uh, it turned out some important tennis. <laughs> See, now, this is a recurring thing. I'm going to let the listeners in on a little TBS behind the scenes info. This is a recurring argument that we have, whereby you will take any opportunity to tell the listeners which tennis you have not watched. It's called radical honesty, <laughs> radical candor. <laughs> I'm like, why am I going to lie and say, oh, yeah, I saw this match. It was amazing. I'm like, why are when you I telling people we have not watched the tennis? <laughs> we are a tennis podcast. Okay, but we, you're allowed to miss a match here and there. Like, we sure. also do have a life. I agree. No longer have a VCR, so we can't tape it. I believe me. I I taped stuff off TV way longer than most people. It wasn't that ancient of a setup. It was a PVR. We weren't doing, no, like, I mean, videotape. Sure, but we don't even have that anymore. Mm-hmm. You have, we've had bits cut out of the show where you've come on here, sat down and said, well, I didn't watch any tennis this week. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, I don't really care about this. Exactly. No, but I do care about the US Open. The season ends with Iga Svantec winning her first hardcourt major. It feels right, although it felt fairly unlikely going into it. This, I feel, is the Iga Svantec phenomenon. Uh, she's becoming a player who can just figure out how to win when she's not playing her best. Whose baseline is that much higher than everybody else's. Right. You watch her matches, the matches where she struggles, and you think she's there for the taking, but she still wins in straight sets. And she's the type of player that inspires a lot of tweeting and a lot of journalism about, well, she's not unbeatable. This is how you can beat her. And of course, there are ways to beat her, but it's a lot more difficult to execute on the court than it is to sit on the couch and say, oh, her second serve is very attackable, or, you know, target the forehand, whatever, whatever, take time away from her. It's really, really hard to do that. And she has a way of papering over the the weak points in her game, and there aren't many. The second serve is a big one. It is, but everybody is sitting on the couch saying, attack her second serve. It's attackable. You know, she's not she's not blowing people off the court. Her service games are... You can work yourself into them. Ange Jabour broke her three times in the final. But there's, there's just another level, right? There's this competitiveness that 
as Mariah said, not everybody has that. <laughs> Fine, you start the point on the second serve, and if you don't hit a winner, what do you do? You still have to rally with her. You still have to get by her impeccable, impregnable defense. Yeah, so this was the big problem in the final, is I think what it boils down to, the simplest way, is that she is stealing time from her opponent, right? Ons is trying... Careful how you use that turn of phrase. (laughs) I do not mean it like that. Listen, we are not going to talk about the gamesmanship allegations. I tweeted something because I was annoyed in the final. I deleted it because I didn't want that to be my takeaway and all the replies to just sit out there. We are going to talk about it. I just didn't want it to be the main focus takeaway from this segment. It has has to be talked about. But as far as the actual tennis, she takes time away from her opponent. And that was so clear in the final that she wants to drop shots. She wants to mix up pace, slice, return with forehand slices, But it's really difficult because if you get down, if you get into a defensive mode in any rally, Iga's probably going to win that. And so with that much work on the ball, that much spin, that much speed, it's easier said than done, right? To hit this perfect drop shot that just floats across the net. I also think that folks look at Iga and sometimes are not impressed by her. Mm-hmm. Because they expect somebody who has twice as many points at number one as number two, somebody who at 21 has won three majors now, somebody who has taken the baton from Ash Barty and just run away with the penthouse keys of the WTA to look unbeatable all the time. And Iga doesn't give that all the Whoa. time. Part of being. Sometimes to- she does. She does, but okay. How many slam finals have been won with somebody just playing unbelievable tennis? A lot of times, it's a lot of mess. A lot of times, it's sloppy tennis, it's nerves, it's folks being overcome by the moment for much of the match before being able to put it all together. Uh, Iga's first slam run was imperious, yes, as you remember. But this one, the final was, uh, it was a little bit messy. Right, she was by far the better player, of course, but the second set was messy enough to be entertaining. It felt like a real contest. Ons was down a set and love three in the second set, and it felt like this thing was over. Because we've seen the the powerhouse, the way that Ia can close out matches, especially finals. She had won what, ten straight finals with nobody winning more than four games in a set? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a crazy, scary stat to go up against, but Ons was game, right? She was fighting, she was trying different things, and they were working. Iga was getting a little bit sloppy. She's making a lot of errors, and it was a real contest. I don't know that I would call it a great final, or even a good final, but it wasn't a demolition. It took almost two hours. Let's talk about this gamesmanship thing briefly. Yeah, so clips had circulated of that weird starfish jumping jack thing she does at the net sometimes, which appears to be a weird attempt to distract her opponent. We talked about that last episode. In the final, she does this thing where like, she'll change her racket in the middle of a game before her opponent's serve, and th- there's not a racket string broken, she's just changing her racket. And... Some speculate that it has to do with the strings being loose. 
Sure, but so she did this on match point. Ons was serving, and she runs over to change her racket. Yeah, it was very quick. Ons said she didn't even notice. It wasn't a thing. I just objected to, like, why are you doing this? To me, I don't, like, it doesn't matter who noticed or who didn't. It just, just get on with it. Why do you have to change your racket now? And again, like, by itself, it's not that big a deal. I really don't want to harp on it. Like, I don't think she's a bad person. I'm just saying, clean clean those things up. For example, Diana Yastrzemska retired today two points away from losing the match. <laughs> and she's done this before where she's retired down big on match point. Mm-hmm. Just unable to continue playing. Today it was clear that she was suffering with what looks like maybe a serious wrist injury. Mm. But do you do you give her the benefit of the doubt? Does she deserve the benefit of the doubt when there's so much history and context of this? <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So with Iga specifically, when you're young, and she still is young, but when she was younger, it was like, okay, maybe this is some growing up that needs to do. You know, when I was a child, I did childish things. <laughs> but when I grew up, <laughs> you know, did I just quote scripture yes, on this Yes, put podcast? away childish things. Oh, wow. But now she's world number one. Now she is statistically, by the rankings metric, twice as good as anybody else. Statistically. Right. Although, Anza's runner-up finish at Wimbledon did not count. Okay. It would be a smaller golf. Still a golf, but smaller. Yeah. My, my point is still taken. <laughs> yeah. And when your results are so imperious, when everybody out here is struggling so mightily... To keep up with you. What are we doing here? Yeah. It's just like, why are you doing it? And it, it seems like an easy thing to be mindful of by now to just take out of your game. Mm-hmm. To say, okay, I'm just going to have to not do it. <laughs> Even if for the optics. And I know that that's a triggering word and phrase for a lot of people. But... It's, it's just not cute. It's not cute. Upon reflection, I I let it bother me too much. And so that's when once I saw the replies and sort of people ganging up, I was like, you know what? I, I think I started something that I'm not entirely comfortable with. So that's why I deleted it. When I delete a tweet, I typically have a better social media policy than a lot of major media companies on Twitter. Oh, and what is I that? I like to take ownership. That sounded so pretentious. Because what it it really is, you refuse to suffer people talking to you any which way. (laughs) Like, okay, somebody used my first name, like somebody I don't know. And I'm sitting there like, if you don't know me, don't ever call me by name. Like, are you my mother? Mm. Absolutely not. And I'm not talking about the Twitter friends, like the Twitter mutuals. Somebody I've never seen before. Don't you ever call me by my first name. Well, this is how it always happens. You send the tweet. You're all incensed. You're mad. Then the tweet starts doing numbers, be it likes or just a lot of replies. When the replies start coming in, then it becomes a problem because you just get... It turns from being annoyed at the situation to being annoyed at being bothered. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I don't need the likes. I don't want the engagement, whatever. We weren't going to talk a lot about this, so we'll move on. On... is a superstar. Like, she, she is bringing people to the sport. 
A lot of people question her kind of uh, competitive will. You know, is she a choker? I think she came up against an opponent who was damn near unbeatable, at least by (laughs) Anstrapur. And uh, I don't know, this is like another step in the right direction to me. It honestly gives me even more hope that she will win a major. She's made two finals in a row Mm -hmm. on two different surfaces. And you could argue neither of them is her best surface. Well... I'm not. I, I don't know. No, that I, that's, mean, I don't know that that's the case. But you could make you could make that argument. I think you could argue that she excels best on the natural surfaces, mm-hmm. and that a U.S. Open final is a is a big win for her. Of course, she wanted this title. It was not to be. I mean, <laughs> Iga is a dominant number one, as you said. Like she took over from Ash, and she's dominated in kind of a different way, in more of a full time way. We were told at the start of her career that she was so much better on clay than any other surface. And this year has shown that not to be the case. Well, she is, but she's also really damn good on hard courts and has enough game to sort of overcome the the foibles and the flaws in her hard court game. You have the slower surface in Indian Wells, she wins that. She goes to Miami right after that, she wins that. What else did she win? Doha? Doha. She... Goes to the U.S. Open, all this talk generated by her about the balls and how they're trash, everybody hates them, mm-hmm. and she troubleshoots it. Like, this is another element of her development that should give her competitors a lot of pause, <laughs> should have them worrying, because she's no longer just re- relying on her natural talents. Right. She's using those as well as figuring things out and working on her deficiencies, however few they may be. Her defense and her speed are a pretty underappreciated part of her game, I think because we don't have to appreciate it that much. But the way that she can scramble and turn defense to offense is scary. And it's like champion stuff. Like that's the kind of stuff you need. This final was in effect a matchup between the top two players in the world. The best players of this year? As you said, Ons would have been there had it not been for Wimbledon points not counting. Mm-hmm. After the tournament, she's officially the number two player in the world. So to put a nice bow on the WTA season to date and the slam season, this was an appropriate final. In the semifinals, Jabur dusted Caroline Garcia. Oh, man. That was a... Uh, to me, it was a slightly surprising end to what was a very impressive run here and a stretch of a few months at this at this rate. After watching her quarterfinal match, you were convinced she was winning this tournament. I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> because in her quarterfinal, I felt Coco did not play badly. Uh, it just it was all Caro all the time. Um, I honestly felt that she was going to win here. In the other semifinal, Iga beat Sabalenka. And a, a quick shout out here to Miss Arena, because if you recall, her year started in shambles. It mm-hmm. was abominable play on court. It was some Whoa. of the worst serving you'll ever see in your life. She and had she, the yips. And she still managed to win matches while serving like that. And then also managed to get better at the serving. And still managed to turn in a good year making her third career slam semifinal. It wasn't that long ago that she couldn't make the second week of these big tournaments. 
That's true. And she turned that serve back into a weapon. That's something that you couldn't have foreseen in January when she was hitting like 20 or more double faults in a match. She's still hitting double, sure. Everybody does. But the serve has actually become a weapon again. And against Pliskova, her winning was not surprising, but the way that she won was very surprising to me. In the first set, took the racket out of Carolina's hands. Just overpowered her completely. And Arima got here by getting through Kaya Kanepi. She was down a set and won five against the giant killer, Kaya Kanepi, and came back and won that. So, uh, you know, Iga has got her opponents out here crying in press conferences, drinking in press conferences. She is <laughs> killing these girls. Uh, but I feel that we, we saw such a human side from Marina. I really liked it. And I, I've kind of actually felt bad because this is another semifinal in the U.S. Open. Last year, she lost one she should have won. At least this year, I think she can leave knowing she, she lost to an incredible player. If you recall, she was just all over Leila Fernandez last year. And watching mm-hmm. that semifinal, I at least was thinking, how does Layla find a way around this? Right. And she did. This power. And then a year later, she's Arena's found herself so close to getting the final again and unable to do it. And she showed that emotion in press after losing that match. Mm-hmm. She was gutted about it. You referenced having her opponents drinking in press conferences. You're referring to <laughs> Jessica Pagula, who showed up to her press conference after the quarterfinal with a can of Heineken. And mm-hmm. when asked, she was, she said, well, you know, it'll make me feel better, but also it's, it'll help me get ready for doping <laughs> to be able to provide a sample. Yes. Because in tennis, we are very interested in what people do in the bathroom. It's it's one a, of the themes of this tournament, topic. isn't it? It is. It was last year, too, in a much more sinister way. Uh, shout out to Isla Tomlanovich for getting to the quarters after beating Serena Williams. Her tournament went on. You know, I was a little... Uh, what's the word? I was a little doubtful. Dark-sided. Yes, I was. But her win over Samsonova, come on. Like, an 18-point tiebreak, and then flew through the second set. Throughout the first week of the tournament... And by extension, the WTA side of the tournament, all the energy was concentrated around Serena Williams's last ever tournament before she, she doesn't like the word retirement, but before she evolved into mm-hmm. something else. She still hasn't committed that this will be her final match, that she won't just pop up somewhere. I think she's done. She wants to have another baby, but she is leaving the possibility open. I I read it more as she needs to have something of this entire experience just for herself. Mm, mm. That us not knowing for sure is something she needed to have control over. Oh, I you know, I think that's very perceptive. Well, thank you. Yeah, that when someone of her status announces this, she then loses control of the story, right? It becomes such a spectacle uh, in such a money-making enterprise Because what we learned to, I think John Wertheim wrote about it in his 50 parting shots, was that Serena didn't even know how she was going to go about doing this farewell for months. It was Mm. an agonizing process for months, and she kind of had to be convinced into giving us a heads up that this was happening. 
that that wasn't necessarily her preferred way of doing it. Mm. Uh, and so if we are to believe that, then I think that this makes sense for me. Yeah. I mean, Anna Wintour offered the cover of the September issue, the most important issue of Vogue each year. I guess you kind of have to say yes. Kudos to Jill, because I imagine she had some part in that. Jill, who's moved on to Francis. To Danielle. Danielle. Well, my point in bringing this up, the first week was Serena. Mm-hmm. And then the second week was capped by the far and away number one player in the world cementing her position. Mm-hmm. I know lots of sport writing and sport commentating is plagued by the need to have these cute little narratives, the passing the torch, the this, the that. But I just enjoyed that the tournament ended with women's tennis being on even further solid ground for me. Mm -hmm. And being being okay, right? Like the Serena era has ended. Does that mean that the Iga era has begun? I don't know. We're we're in the midst of it. We we can't tell, right? We took a brief stopover into Ash Barty era, and and the future is uh, I don't know. But the quarterfinalists were none of them were surprising. So many of them have been the most solid players of the year. I what I like about tennis, and I think what helps us get over losing our favorite players is that it it just never stops. It's relentless. If you're not having fun, you can jump off and you can jump back in. Because next week is going to be something different. Like, nothing lasts in tennis. I also want to make a point about Iga here and relate it to Ash Barty and what we lived through on this podcast. When Ash became a three-time slam champion, when she was the one who was dominating the women's sport, the one who people looked at and was like, well, why can't these girls beat her? (laughs) She's so attackable. When... Elements of her game don't scream unbeatable. Mm -hmm. But eventually, and we saw it with Ash, people just like winners. Once you win enough, then you become status quo. Then you become acceptable. Then you become an acceptable winner. An acceptable number one. What went before, what people deemed to be lucky, what deemed to be an easy draw, it just becomes canon. It becomes part of your Mm -hmm. career part of the story of tennis. Nobody looks back, unless it's Margaret Court, and dissects draws to say, well, that was, that was not it. That well, that right. draw, that slam should have an asterisk. That doesn't happen. You're not looking at the 1975 French Open and dissecting the draw. I hope that wasn't a bad example. You just pulled that one oh. into your hat. Oh, God, I hope it was <laughs> I hope it wasn't like an asterisk You'll have one. to go back and look at that. <laughs> but my point is, Iga... For all the complaints about her being boring and people not liking her, don't like her. That's fine. But the more she wins, the more it's going to be. She's yeah. undeniable. How many people out here like Justine Anna? How many? Uh, listen, I that is a seven-time slam champion. She is an all-time great. I understand. Right? And she is, in some ways, a forgotten champion. At least in North America. She's an underappreciated champion. Uh, because of what she did during the Williams era, she's not particularly loved and wasn't ever into being loved, really. Anyway, it, the point is... My, my, point, my point is she still has seven. Oh, yeah. 
and her place in history is it's undoubted it's unquestionable right so it remains to be seen what the women of this era will do how many they will win who will be the dominant champions but at some point you just have to say well this is what we got and if you don't like it you don't like it but that doesn't mean it's not good Right, because the idea that Iga Svantec is a bad number one is a bad take. Well, that's silly. It's a horrible take. I mean, if you feel her competition isn't good enough, was she supposed to go rustle out, go in the parking lot and find better competition? Like, she's playing who needs to be played. (laughs) Shout out to Iga Svantec and shout out to Serena Williams. On the men's side, well, you may have heard, the new goat has been born. Wow, he was barely bleating a year ago. (laughs) And now he is ready to be curried. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so, Carlos Alcaraz is the U.S. Open champion, the youngest men's number one in history. I, I just know I have... The youngest everything. Now I have Duncan Sheik in my head. Barely bre- Oh. Because <laughs> I am barely bleeding. Ble- bleating. Bleating, yeah. Bleating, yeah. Uh, anyway, this is... Uh, for the past year, like the prince who has been promised, the player that tennis wants really, really badly. The player that the ATP needs desperately. They do. Uh, because now, no longer are commentators wondering about the future of men's tennis and sort of wringing their hands, rending their garments about what happens when the big three retires. Now, I want to pump the brakes here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the hater. I'm just going to say there are other players who may rise to challenge Alcaraz as dominant players. There are current players who are better than him. They just can't play in many countries legally. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There are other players who have played the majority of the season injured but still won two of the majors. Yes. So... This is not to downplay the achievement. It's only because I personally get annoyed when forced to accept truths that I don't necessarily believe. And enthusiasm... And what are those truths? Well, that he's poised to be the goat. I mean, the win inspired some incredibly unhinged takes on Twitter. It's been happening from before. I think most of them are probably just for attention. I think a lot of them aren't serious. But... I think it does a disservice to the actual tennis being played. Like, watch it. Enjoy it. This is meant to be entertaining. This is a sport, sure. But, like, this is for people to spend money on. Are you not entertained? I mean, we'll talk about that in a second. But this men's tournament gave a lot for people who are wondering what's going to happen over the next few years. If you're wondering that, Alcaraz is number one. Kasparud is the number two player in the world. Those are two very young men who are now ranked at the top of men's tennis. So there's a a window into it. Mm -hmm. Yannick Sinner, who played Alcaraz really, really tightly into the early hours of the morning. Uh, He had a a match point, right? In In the fourth set, Sinner had a match point. He sure did. You stayed up and watched that whole thing. I sure did. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a similar thing is happening with opponents of Alcaraz is that they're getting close. 
They can see... Similar thing to who? Oh, sorry, to Schwantek. Okay. They know what the weaknesses are, but it's just very, very difficult to exploit them. See, I think the more appropriate and applicable comparison is to what we witnessed with Bianca in 2019. Oh, interesting. Because at the start of that year, she was a somewhat known entity. Sure, she was an up-and-comer. Yeah. And Ange Kerber will tell you there were many matches that you probably look at that she should not have won. Right, right. And you get to watching these matches and both of them, they come up with ridiculous video game bullshit Mm -hmm. to win points. And as an established star on the other side of the court where you're used to playing a certain way and used to having points end a certain way when you deploy your weapons to have this bullshit coming back at you, you're like, what is going on? And then to see it continually happen throughout the year and then translate and snowball into actual legit deep runs, big wins, tournament wins, and then culminate in a slam. There was there was a snowball effect with Bianca for me that I think is similar to what happened with Carlos, where, yes, there was the prodigious talent, the seemingly endless tools and weapons at their disposal. They can do anything on a tennis court, except for Carlos, like, serve impregnably. <laughs> right, but there are small weaknesses, right? Yeah, but-, but my point is, in saying this, you go from thinking, well, why aren't people beating these people, to them being unbeatable. It turns out that Bianca, her body, beat her. Right. But, but- what, what would Bianca's career look like now if she remained healthy the entire time? Mm-hmm. I think there's an audacity to the way that they both play that can be very demoralizing. <laughs> you feel you're in control. And the the defense, the offense is unrelenting, right? Like Carlos's speed, his willingness to come forward and hit ugly shots to stay in a point and then just sort of rub it in your face. Like, it is demoralizing. And he plays in a way that is creative... It's different. Like, he's not blowing you away with his serve. His service games are attackable. He gets broken. I have never in my life seen a tennis player hit so many ridiculous lob winners. Over and over and over. To the point where it's probably 90% intentional. Like, I I intend to be down and out in this point and I'm going (laughs) to flick... A lob winner, a ludicrous lob winner that's just going to clip the baseline. And that's exactly what I intended to do. <laughs> because at this point, he's done it so many times, it has to be the case. Well, why not? It's a weapon. If you're good at it, why not use it? In the final, for example, he wins the first set, loses the second, and it appears that everything has caught up to him. That he's exhausted, his body is tired, mentally he looked tired. He had come off of playing three consecutive five-set matches. Mm-hmm. against Marin Cilic, Yannick Sinner, and Francis Tiafo. Yeah, he's been up late. His sleep has been disrupted. I didn't I didn't buy that because I had never seen him suffer with fitness before. You know, for, for any normal player, that would have been debilitating, but I didn't really buy that from commentators, that he would be heavily impacted. 
And the thing is, he may have been if this match had gone longer. In the third set, he manages to keep it even with Rude. They break each other once. It gets to a tiebreak. And Casper plays one of the absolute worst tiebreaks that he could have played. Mm-hmm. Just mishits, shanks. It was awful. And he had been so in control. Even though that set was even, the momentum was with him. And it really did look for a little while that Carlos was cooked. He was treading water, but Rude had the upper hand. And then he loses that tiebreak badly and loses the fourth set. And it turns out to be the shortest set of the match. And I mean, that's kind of what this kid can do. You have to be so good and so relentless for so long against him. One, one, of the, one of the ideas, and we propagated it on this show too in the past, one of the ideas that would work against Carlos winning this tournament or Wimbledon this year, the French Open, was that he didn't have the best of five set experience. And he completely obliterated that idea. <laughs> it's like, great job, guys. Now you've given him that. The edge that he didn't have, now he's got it. Because if you're concerned about him being able to handle multiple best of five matches, he, he showed this. Yeah. Three five set matches in a row to get to the final and then to still have enough in the tank to just take everything Kasper Rude threw at him. Which wasn't nothing, by the way. Right. Now they've got him flying off to Davis Cup this week, which I think is a mistake, but whatever. And by they, you mean... <laughs> well, who do you think? Listen, I've had a, quite enough of Ferrero and the team. <laughs> He likes the spotlight a little bit too much for my liking. One of the other things that I cannot quite come to grips with while watching Carlos is just how quick he is. Yes. It's it's unreal. And then to have that speed and to be able to have the dexterity and the, the litheness and to be so limber, the flexibility to, to do anything on the stretch... It must be so dispiriting to play him. Mm-hmm. And you watch him and it's not all, it's not polished by any means. Exactly. And maybe the thing is, like, of course, Ferrero says he's only at 60%. There's so many things that we can work on. Maybe that lack of polish is the magic. Maybe you have to hold on to that. Yes. I... You, because otherwise you're thinking too much. Mm-hmm. It becomes mechanical. He's got something going right now that he just should bottle it and not try and mess with that recipe too much. He's got time. He's got time to make those adjustments that are inevitable if one is to have a 10 plus year career in tennis. Because the other players will rise to the level, right? They will adjust their games. They will learn how to play him. This is how tennis has worked historically. That doesn't mean that one player isn't going to dominate, but they will be challenged. I, I don't want to move on for the men without shouting out Francis Tiafo. Uh, just as I told you so, we believed in Francis for years. And I know a lot of people are on the bandwagon now. A lot of NBA players want to come to the game, the matches. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Obama. But Listen, I, Michelle, I still believe Francis can do this. I think I picked him to have a breakout year this year. In Perhaps one of our preview episodes. I never remember who I pick. But, of course, he beats Rafa, who was not Rafa at his best, obviously. Then in the next match, Andre Rublev, who, unfortunately, Andre has never 
gone past a quarterfinal in a major, Francis played one of the most impeccable tiebreaks you will ever see. Watch the second set tiebreak for like a clinic. He broke the record of most consecutive men's tiebreak. Yes, he won eight tiebreaks and lost none, mm-hmm. right? And then, I mean, against Carlos, he was not favored, but he put up quite a fight in the semis. Considering that he looked cooked at one point. Sure I did. think you said as much. He's like, oh, th- I was like, this feels very over. <laughs> and it wasn't. He wins a fourth set tiebreak. It becomes impossible to win a match like that. Even though he came very close, it, it's kind of impossible to win a match serving low 40s on your first yeah. serve. And then in that fifth set to be serving, what, 20-something percent? Yeah. He could not, for the life of him, put a first serve into that box. There are just, I think mentally, there are only so many times you can overcome a, a deficit. Mm-hmm. And pull it out, and it was one too many. And when you know that in that fifth set, this is it. This is everything on the line, and you're starting that fifth set, and repeatedly, you cannot get a first serve. And that's when you really started to see for the first time in that match, Francis looking super frustrated. Yeah. So, credit to Francis. I'm excited by the result. Credit to Karen Hachanov, who ended the Are You Entertained train... Who saw that coming? He said, no, I'm not entertained. Who saw Karen Hachanov <laughs> making the semifinals of this tournament? And he, playing, he is a wild card, you know? like playing really good tennis. Mm-hmm. You said ending this are you not entertained freight train. Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, something like that. You had mentioned to me earlier in private that what the whole discourse and fandom of Nick Kyrgios feels like is tennis's version of barstool yes and once you said that to me i couldn't see anything but that in everything surrounding curious mm-hmm. from on the court to off the court because if you dare at this point now if you dare say you're not entertained look at the people in your mentions i mean th- this is practically QAnon. this is toxic masculinity writ large and How many times were you called a snowflake? I mean, if these are the kind of fans you attract, I don't want it. And the thing is, there's no denying that Nick brings attention. That's that's a fact. And he brings eyeballs to the sport. But he brings people to his matches. That's it. These are not people who will watch tennis aside from his spectacle. Do you know who else brings... So what is the point? Do you know who else brings eyeballs to the tennis? Who? Carlos Alcaraz. He sure does. Anecdotally, I, I, saw, I saw so many people talking about Carlos. Where we park our car, I have to come up from the garage. And every time I turn <laughs> the corner, that townhouse, their sliding door curtain is always open. Mm-hmm. And they're always watching sports. Always. Mm-hmm. And they're like seven to inch TV. That <laughs> night, Carlos was on. Uh, no, people are talking about him. And Francis is another example of somebody who is electrifying, right? Like if he continues consistent results and getting in late stages and majors and masters, he's somebody that you can promote the sport on. And like, I don't even want to make the comparison, right? It's not like, oh, he's better for the game than this person. It's just that when tennis spends so much of its time investing in one or two players, the other players don't even have the opportunity to become a star. When they're 18 years old, 
somebody decides they have no charisma. They have no star power. So we're going to invest in this other guy. You've decided. Like, how do you know that? You've decided that Casper Rude is too boring to get eyeballs in tennis. But he's also one of the most handsome men on the ATP tour. <laughs> what is not marketable about that? Right. Also, reportedly, one of the nicest guys on the ATP tour. Like, you can't market that? Come on, guys. And what does that say about what is valued in sports, specifically men's sport, yeah. and why the bar stool bullshit are is what rises to the top? Are you saying that physical attraction is what matters? It should be part of the <laughs> equation. <laughs> but up until this summer, what had Nick Kyrgios done? He'd won a couple tournaments. Well, He'd won a sure. couple big, high-profile matches. But a lot of the mess was happening in first and second rounds. Well, first weeks of tournaments. This has been going on for years. We've been force-fed this bullshit as being good for the game. When, in fact, he hadn't been around much. <laughs> well, of course, this summer they had this redemption narrative that, was, that probably had been ready to go for years. They had already written the story. This goes hand in hand with the are you not entertained phenomenon. Mm -hmm. If I never see that again, it'll be too soon. This is a quote from Gladiator, Mm -hmm. by the way. It's going to be the title of this episode. Or some variation of it. It is so overused by Tennis TV, by the US Open Twitter account. And I've got to say, for years, the US Open social media presence has had a a reputation for being kind of messy, kind of trolly. And maybe I'm just older, but I'm tired of it. It's unprofessional. It's unprofessional because they get facts wrong and have to delete and then don't explain why they were deleted. They are just messy in a not fun way. Or not funny, not funny way. Right? So I just had to unfollow. And so don't blame whoever they're paying not enough to write their tweets because this has been their social media strategy for years at this point. But I'm tired of having to answer, are you not entertained? Shut up. Please. Carlos becomes the youngest ever ATP number one in history. Yeah. He's the youngest to do a lot of things. I saw the infographic. The youngest major winner since Rafael Nadal in 2005. The youngest US Open winner since Pete Sampras in, I think, 1990. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, prodigies on the men's side are really like a different a different thing than on the women's. We don't see a lot of young male prodigies, just, I mean, because of the way men develop. And I don't think either of us or most tennis followers expected to see a teenage slam champion on the men's side, maybe ever again. <laughs> right. Or maybe just here and there, randomly. But now, if you are a Carlitos hater, if you are not about this bandwagon, if you are disgusted by the constant revving up of the crowd, by the (laughs) bullions, by the narcissism of his coach, the pick-me, pick-me, (laughs) pick-me nature of that situation. If you are not... Is this going somewhere? Yes. If you are not into the unabashed self-belief that this kid has, the complete belief in him being able to do anything on a tennis court... You're you're looking at me like just just get it out just get it out. Then, if you are not into all of those things, then you're shit out of luck. Because barring injury, listen, I'm not here to tell you he's gonna win twenty slams, ten, or even five. 
I'm just saying he's going to be a presence at the top of the men's game for a long time. What that looks like, I don't know. But here we are. That was the opening paragraph to A Tale of Two Cities. (laughs) That wraps the singles portion of the episode. On the double side, we'll save the women's doubles for the last because there is quite a bit to get into there. There is. On the men's side, Rajiv Ram and Salisbury defended their title, beating Kulov and Skupski in straight sets. It's their third title together at the slam level. In mixed doubles, Storm Sanders and John Piers beat Flipkins and Roger Vassalon. Flipkins is in the midst of retiring. Well, is actually retired, but she made the mixed doubles final here. Storm Sanders also made the semis of women's doubles. No, is she a righty or a lefty? Storm Sanders. I have no idea. I'm guessing since you're asking that she's a lefty. Correct. I know I know that we saw her uh, in Toronto. Yes, we saw her in that interminable match against Leila Fernandez yes. in Toronto. That's it. In women's doubles, if you know anything about me, I am going to tweet about Krejcikova and Siniakova. It may get no likes, but I am going... that From the body server count, that's always me. It was, uh, I mean... What was popular about they, it? Well, first of all, let's talk about the actual match. They have really sealed their place as the the best women's doubles team of their generation. They've won every big title, finally winning the career slam at the U.S. Open. They've won the Olympics, uh, Fed Cup, Billie Jean King Cup, the WTA Finals. And in this match, they were down. It, uh, it was rocky there for a while. They were down big. They were down a set and 4-1. Taylor Townsend and Katie McNally, the American pair, are a net-rushing team, right? And Renee Stubbs was talking about how this can really throw off opponents having two players at the net for a lot of these rallies. It takes a lot of adjustments. Krejcikova was not that great from the back of the court for the first part of that match. And I remember talking about them that... Barbara was so just, I mean, so steady at the baseline and Katarina could pick off at the net. She wasn't doing that that well for a lot of this match. I have never seen as many lobs in my life as I did in this match. (laughs) And so I think down 1-4, they started to figure out their opponents and it became clear that the match was going their way. They're just, they're too good as a team. So they win, they win the tournament. They win the title. That's not where the crux of this segment lies. Right. As the trophies are coming out, we see that Patrick McEnroe is the one who's doing the trophy presentation to Taylor Townsend, who has a really difficult past with the USTA and Patrick McEnroe in particular. Back in 2012, the USTA, under the direction of Patrick McEnroe, who was the head of player development at the time, decided to withdraw her funding. She was the current junior world number one. They Specifically were... for the US Open. They said that she needed to, instead of play the US Open, go do an eight-week fitness block during that time. Yes. Even though she was the Australian Open singles and doubles junior champion. And ranked number one in the world. And only 16 years old. The best junior in the world. The USTA looked at her and said, you are too fat. If we boil it right down, they saw her body and they thought that she was out of shape and too fat to play tennis. 
regardless of the results. A 16-year-old girl. Imagine what that's like. A 16-year-old black girl. I was on my way out to go to work. I was sitting down, tying my shoelace, and then I look up and I see Patrick McEnroe. And I look over to you and I think my words were, are they fucking serious right now? Mm -hmm. And it was the kind of thing that actually got worse the more that you thought about it. At first it was like, okay, this sucks. And then you go back and read the stories from 2012. Not only did they withdraw her funding... They refused to give her a wild card into qualifying or the main draw at the U.S. Open. They had given her a wild card into qualifying, qualifying the previous year, in 2011. So they wanted to make sure she did not play the U.S. Open. And this was after, in Taylor's own words, she went to the fitness block, I believe it was in Florida, and she had routine blood work done. And it's discovered that she's anemic, and that explains... A lot of what she was feeling at that time, physically. Mm -hmm. And she spoke to doctors and doctors said, well, we'll get you on this treatment program and you'll be good to go for the U.S. Open. You'll actually feel so much better once you're on this treatment program. And so she went back to the UST and she said, look, everything's good. I'm good to go. I will be fine. Sign me up for everything. And they still said no. And at that point, she said, well, what is really going on here? Because at this point, it's no longer what you think about my fitness. It's about my health. You are not in charge of my health. My doctors are. And my doctors have said that I am good to play tennis. As the number one ranked junior player in the world, mm -hmm. who's had such success this year. And the USTA still said, you are too fat. So think about the ways that black women's bodies have been exoticized, uh, insulted, ridiculed, misunderstood. They looked at what a woman looked like and they said, you're not fit enough to play tennis. Despite what we see They looked on at the a court, young girl. A young girl. Not even a woman. I'm sorry. A girl. Patrick McEnroe made a graceless exit from the USTA two years later. Parents literally celebrated his removal from the USTA. And so this is 10 years later. The parties may have reconciled. We, I have no idea. But Taylor looked at him. And if you didn't know anything about the situation, you may have missed it. But he asked her a question and she made a very, very pointed response. In part, what she said was, I've earned my way to be here. And everyone can see that. And she said, she'll be back. Make no mistake about that. It was a very emphatic response to McEnroe. And I just thought in that moment, like, this is this is a tough moment. You just lost a slam final. It sucks. And then you see somebody who caused you a lot of pain as a kid, as a 16-year-old. And then you think about the many indignities that black female American tennis players have had to suffer in this country. The microaggressions, the insults, the mocking, the adultification, which I just did, mm -hmm. which I was... I was guilty of, right? That white people then tell you do not exist. That you're imagining it. Right, right. That Because you don't see it. That it's why are you bringing race into this? And in that moment that while she lost this match and there's sadness in that and disappointment, it's still one of the highlights of her career and something to be celebrated. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, she's being met with this. With this. And... 
you think of the other people, if we're just going by ESPN, the other people on the staff who could have done that. There are literal women's doubles legends on the roster at ESPN. There are professional broadcasters like Chris McKendry. Who is Patrick McEnroe? He's neither of those things. And so the, the, I mean, oblivious confidence of someone like Patrick McEnroe, who could be asked to do that job and say yes. To not have the self-awareness. And it's it's really mind-boggling. And it's something that bothers me. So it's it has really been sitting with me. And it's really been pissing me off. Because, like, this is a small sport, and they assume that nobody gives a fuck. And in some ways, they're right. The people who do care about this stuff are a small minority. Uh, they're us. There are people on tennis Twitter. I know there are people within these institutions who care, who looked on that and said, what the hell are you doing? But what does that mean? What, what does that mean for the sport? But is, clearly that's not even enough to move the it's needle no. to have this have been a different decision. Because on the face of it, nobody cares who is hosting this trophy presentation. Nobody cares. Literally nobody cares. Nobody is saying, oh, let me turn on the TV because Patrick McEnroe is giving out the trophy. It's ridiculous. Like, when I talked on the last episode about these lifetime appointments, who is, uh, they? you know, they love to say moving the needle, right? Who is moving the needle? As a commentator, are you turning in and saying, oh, thank we're in such good hands. Patrick McEnroe is here. (laughs) I mean, the... The immense gifts you've been given because you are related to a legend and then what what you did with them at the USDA. It's <sighs> on top of all of this, we have to remember too that Taylor Townsend is a player whose every move as a professional has been questioned. Mm-hmm. Why isn't she playing Europe in the spring? Why is why- she having a baby in her mid twenties? Why is she only staying stateside? Why hasn't she risen up the rankings more? She should be doing this. She could be doing that. And she showed us the entire time that she has done this her and she has done this herself. She has done it her own way. And that was wrapped up in her response to in saying, I have earned my position despite what every single one of you all have been saying about me and doing to me since I was 15, 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And if you watched her on-court speech or her press conference and you see that confidence and that resolve and that steeliness and mistake that for cockiness, you are not paying attention to anything. You're not getting Because you don't know the half of what this woman has been through and what the oblivious people who run the sport continue to do to her. It was honestly one of the most horrifying things i've seen on a tennis broadcast it 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 shook that's, me it shook me saying something because well it because was it's completely it's unnecessary and it's very thoughtless. completely unnecessary and i don't believe for one second that nobody put their hand up to say right oh should should he be doing that really like and he i mean he gleefully accepted the role clearly you can look at this incident as one example of how adults in tennis have historically mistreated young girls. And we got another example of that from earlier in the tournament with Fiona Farrow, 
and with Victoria Azarenka's subsequent comments on that situation and what the WTA Players Council has been trying to do to address it. To be clear, I'm not saying that the two things are the same. I'm just saying that we seem to continue to have a problem whereby young girls, as they enter the sport, are not protected in the ways that they should by the adults who run the sport. Right. French player Fiona Farrow recently pressed criminal charges against her former coach Pierre Boutier, charges of rape and sexual assault for alleged incidents that happened when she was ages 15 to 18. She posted on social media, I did not consent. Pierre Boutier's lawyer countered with, quote, it was a love story, according to him. That is truly disgusting. Because he's, he's not contesting the facts. He said, yes, there was sexual contact, but they were in love. He was in love with a, a 15-year-old child, and he, it was reciprocated, according to him. So a 15-year-old can consent. It's brave, and it's to be commended that Fiona was able to, to press charges, and uh, many, many survivors can't or won't for many valid reasons. I don't want to make this say that this is more valid than other cases, but uh, it's truly horrifying that this was allowed to happen. What's more horrifying is that uh, the Telegraph interviewed coaches after Pam Shriver's story came out, and male coaches said there are so many relationships between male coaches and female pupils. There's so much inappropriate, unprofessional behavior that's happening on the WTA. Some of them said it's more common than it has ever been in their career. And so not all of these relationships are between underage girls and adult men, but there is this clear power imbalance and big age gaps in a lot of these alleged relationships. Victoria Azarenka was asked about this in press, and as president of the WTA Players Council, she has been really active, she's been very vocal and passionate about things like safeguarding, And she said, this is the number one issue. Like, she hears about this constantly. She said, there are so many incidents of young girls getting taken advantage of in different situations. Everybody knows, it seems. And everybody has known for decades, right? Uh, That nobody seems mm. shocked by this at all. No, it's, that's the thing. It's not shocking. It's not surprising. But it is awful. Uh And so Victoria even said that if she had a daughter she would think really, really long and hard before putting her child in tennis because of this, because young girls are vulnerable in the sport. And so the WTA has, uh, I don't know if they've hired the director of safeguarding, but they posted this role uh, around the time that Pam's story came out in June. They are working toward safeguarding, but as a player's council, with the considerable constraints on a player's council, like what can you do, right? And it seems that Victoria is taking the role very seriously, but I think that this is a story that we have to continue to talk about because what are, I mean, what is the solution from the WTA and the ATP when these people are independent contractors, when coaches sometimes work for federations that you don't have control over, that they're just private professional relationships between coach and student? It's uh, it's really troubling. And it's, I mean, beyond being awful and abusive, it's such a horrible look for this sport and for people looking to join it. Not too long ago, we had Pam Shriver come forward and tell her story 
of what happened to her in the late 70s, into the early 80s. And 40 plus years later, we are being made to understand that this problem is as bad as it ever has been. Or worse. What has tennis done in those 40 years? It is so disturbing to try and wrap your head around that. Mm. I think, like, the the hope is that the the bravery of these women coming forward will make it more normal and slightly more comfortable for other survivors to come forward. And the other thing that we have on our side is that we have language and vocabulary that folks didn't have in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's a more awareness of what abuse is, what grooming is. That doesn't mean that these behaviors will stop, but people can name it a little bit easier, I think. And I like I hope that's not this stupidly optimistic take, but I do think there's just a little bit more awareness publicly. How do you transition from that? Uh, I don't know. So we're not going to try to transition. On the previous episode, we talked a lot about Serena's evolving away from tennis, right? Mm. I was on site for pretty much all of it. I saw... The entire evolution? (laughs) At the US Open. (laughs) I saw the second round match. And one of the things that struck me about being there in New York, and I think it put it into relief more than if I hadn't gone, if I was just watching that from here, is just how many people, companies, entities, profited off her name (laughs) and being associated with her. Mm. People were looking all over the US Open shop for Serena Williams merch. And there wasn't any, Mm. for whatever reason. So ahead of our matches, on the boardwalk from the subway station to the site, you had all these vendors selling beer, water, what have you. But then they started popping up with Serena Williams merch. (laughs) So at that match against Contivate, I was sat in a section where no fewer than seven people had on the same t-shirt, which meant that they bought it that day (laughs) to wear that night. And reasonably priced, I'm told, $15. Oh, well, wow. That's very cheap. That's why they were selling like hotcakes. Mm -hmm. So you have folks making money off of bootleg merch <laughs> they're not licensed to sell her image so i can this tell was you like that on the concourse between yes. the, stadi- mm-hmm. the stadium and the subway yeah oh wow you have scalpers you have virtual scalpers mm-hmm. the <laughs> buying and reselling tickets to her matches at like a thousand percent profit yeah what is that that's called the secondary market or the I, whatever i okay. don't know And then you have people who, by association, are then able to add different titles to their names. (laughs) You are not right at all. I'm just saying. I was struck by just how many people were making money. Were you And gaining clout. I was. Just how many. I mean. Off of her name. Yeah. And being associated with her. The U.S. Open is still tweeting about how this was the most successful tournament in terms of merchandise, food and beverage, attendance, everything. I mean, it blew it out of the water. The Sports Business Journal tweeted today that Serena's third round match of the U.S. Open accumulated 441 million impressions on Twitter. The 49,078 tweets 
generated over 4.4 million in social value. What that means, okay. I don't know. I, yeah, I, don't I have know no that idea means. what that means. <laughs> but we also know that it was the most watched match at this tournament. In ESPN history. In ESPN and history. Don't, don't let anyone lie to you. ESPN has broadcast a lot of finals. <laughs> People were trying to say, oh, oh, the big networks broadcast the final. You know, NBC. And mm-hmm. that's... Mm-mm-mm-mm. And I'm getting to a point here. Oh, okay. I realize I've been very long-winded wow. this episode. When we learned that Serena was moving away from tennis, one of the things that we felt initially was relief. And part of that was because of the discourse surrounding Serena Williams throughout her career and knowing full well that it's often involved bad actors, people yes. operating in bad faith to promote their own agenda. And... I think this puts that into relief to some extent as well. For a lot of people, her worth and her achievements were intertwined, inseparable. Mm -hmm. And that she was only as good as what she could do and provide and profit for people. Sure. But, I, you know, I think there... The U.S. Open fetted her appropriately. There was a different level of acceptance than we've seen. Before, you know, Venus Williams even said in the early 2010s that she had received a kind of adulation at the U.S. Open that she had never felt in her home country. It was good to see. Like, it felt good as a fan because they deserve it. Matches being played at the U.S. Open until 3 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) And then we're being told by the U.S. Open Twitter account, wow, what a moment. This is what it's all about. What an achievement. I saw your tweet about it from the body serve, mm-hmm. uh, from our mutual account, and I do agree. I think maybe you, you know, you were a little dramatic about it. Uh, what? But I do. I mean, the thing is, I love the night session at the U.S. Open, but that is ridiculous. I don't know. Maybe started at six. Like, I, I don't know what the solution is, but it's not. It's not fair to a player who plays till three in the morning. If it's something that cannot be avoided, that doesn't mean you must also celebrate it. <laughs> Because what's at play here is players' physical and mental health and their well-being. Yes. No, I agree. I agree. Just because Carlos Alcaraz is 19 years old, barely there, and clearly the Energizer Bunny, and can run on all sorts of adrenaline, Mm. you know, that doesn't make it okay. No. What if if this were Rafa? (laughs) What if this were Novak? Yeah. And his opponent is like kicking his feet up in the ice bath. We're watching Netflix in the hotel. I guarantee you we would have heard a different story. Yes. And why Carlos is playing those matches at that time is for TV ratings. Right. Well, of course. And So I liken it to working in a a restaurant, right? (laughs) You and I are doing the same job, but I am being asked to do more duties, to perform more duties and work longer for the same pay. Mm -hmm. That's what that boils down to for me. Sure. And it's it's and just not right. It'll make your next shift more difficult. It absolutely will. And you may have to go home because your foot hurts. Mm-hmm. Or something. Yeah. All of that. <laughs> I like the I like the analogy. I wanted to talk about the crowd for a second. There's uh, every U.S. Open, people complain about the crowd, how they're tacky, trashy, they're too partisan. And yeah, I mean, all of those things are true. They're extremely partisan. If there's an American they're excited about. Well, you just switched that up. You went from partisan to I know partisan. I, did. I forgot how I actually say it. 
That's the problem of moving to a new country. Like you forget. Well, you know. I certainly do. Way more than me. You forget actually what your accent used to sound like. Uh, So anyway, my point is that all Grand Slam crowds are extremely partisan. I think what sets the U.S. Open apart and what pisses people off is that the U.S. Open crowd is also very disengaged and very inconsistent. You have a lot of Wall Street bros at this tournament. Right. I've ridden the train with them. (laughs) And so they can be super annoying and distracting and insulting to players. But they're also, like, dead for so much of that Tiafo Alcaraz match where they should have been amped from point one. They weren't really giving that much. They come in and out. And I think that's what sets them apart from the French and the Australians, is that the U.S. Open crowd, and correct me if I'm wrong because you were there, feels a little less knowledgeable, a little less engaged in the point-to-point tennis because it's like, this is New York. This is an event. I don't know about the knowledgeable part, but I told you this on the last episode, my experience of being in the 300 level. <laughs> it's almost impossible yeah. to stay engaged chronologically from point to point because of all the distractions. Yes. So I think like American fans, like tennis isn't a major sport in the US. So not everybody at the US Open is going to be a tennis fan. A lot of people are there just to drink. Sure. I don't know what the point is. It's just... Yeah. It's partisan, but it's different than the other slams. I can neither co-sign or <laughs> reject that statement. Uh-huh. Uh, going back to the WTA and safeguarding for a moment, the WTA finals has been announced as taking place in Fort Worth, Texas, which I felt was a very troubling choice uh, in 2022, a state which just outlawed abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. I understand that the WTA can only boycott so many places, but it was a really problematic decision. Was Serona Kirstea involved in the negotiations for this deal? Because we know she's a big Greg Abbott fan. (laughs) She is. Yeah, loves him. And then in the same breath, they announced that the finals will return to China in 2023. Which, what the actual fuck? Like, the boycott is over? They just sort of dropped that without any explanation because they were so forceful and, uh, I mean, took great financial risk to boycott the Chinese tournaments this year. I'm going to need a follow-up on that. Like, what's the story there? I'm going to need to know what's going on specifically there from Mr. Simon. I need a statement. Yeah, it was a weird few press releases. Because if you want to say your hands are tied... And there's nothing more you can do and you're legally bound now. And maybe the survival of the tour financially is dependent on honoring these contracts. Say so. But don't just bury it. Yeah. During the US Open. (laughs) Behind the news. The the also awful news that this tournament is going to be held in Fort Worth. I mean, this is not to say, and folks have pointed this out many, many, many times, that the WTA does business in many places around the world where women's rights are less than ideal. Yes, yes. And it it sort of comes with the territory, but you could have picked another state. I don't understand. Let's, we're going to speed through this because you want to get to pastas. Yes, a few more et cetera before we leave. Today we found out that that guy who was primed to return to tennis 
at Davis Cup. Apparently extended himself too much in practice and now has a bone edema. And he'll be out for a further few weeks or months. Mm -hmm. Anyway, don't really care. Retirements at this tournament? There were a few. Mm -hmm. Aside from Serena, Andrea Petkovic, one of the, really one of like the voices of the sport over the past decade. Bruno Suarez, who was a really successful doubles player with Jamie Murray for much of his career. Sam Querrey, practically the James Bond of COVID. Fled Uh, Russia and is now fleeing tennis. And Christina McHale, who finds herself in important matches a lot. For fans of the Hotman Cup, some good news this week. To be clear, Hotman Cup is not coming back, but the ATP Cup is leaving. And in its stead, we're getting something called United Cup, which will feature ATP and WTA players. Mm -hmm. Don't know what the format will look like. I'm assuming there'll be some points available here at the start of the year. I assume that Bethany and Vashek will be the captains. <laughs> uh, let me, I'm just happy ATP Cup is, is gone. A quick reminder, if you listened to our episode a few weeks ago at this point, it was leading up into the US Open. We had an interview with illustrator and friend of us and the show, Tom Humberstone. His new book, Suzanne is now available for purchase. It is out, so go get your copy. You wanted to finish with, uh, randomly, our favorite and least favorite varieties of pasta? Or as they say in Canada, pasta? <laughs> There's a story behind it. After Karen Hachanov beat Are You Not Entertained, mm-hmm. we got a photo a few hours later in the wee hours of the morning that he was eating a bowl of penne. Yes. And I was disgusted. Because you hate penne. I hate penne. And I tweeted something to the effect of, this is not a meal deserving of that performance. Or I should say, that's not a performance that deserves that meal. Okay. (laughs) And then got to talking with Twitter Mutual Nikita, and she wanted uh, a little segment here about our favorite and least favorite pastas. Mm. I I mean, I don't like penne either, but I will say that it is what you're supposed to eat with arrabbiata, which is what he was eating. Okay. Which means angry, by the way. Did you okay. know that? No, I did not. My fa- I just don't know why the hole is so big. Like Excuse- things get you, stuck in there. Can you please rephrase and retract? That is that exactly statement. what I mean. Like the sauce gets in there and then there's still too much air to sauce. I, and then when you're like, if you happen to slurp something, it makes this ungodly noise. I don't- am begging for this whole discourse to stop. <laughs> I swear I did not mean anything uh, okay. untoward, by it, but that that's really what bothers me. Mm-hmm. It's You know what I don't... The pasta that I cannot stand is linguine and fettuccine, the, mm-hmm. the fat noodles. I do not like them at all. Okay, but for me... And for me, like, what's the real difference between a spaghetti and a linguine? Like, they're still thin, one's round, and one's flat. Yeah, I don't like the flat one. Uh... <laughs> I know Italians love bucatini, which is basically like spaghetti, but it has a hole in the middle. Mm. And so some people make their cacio e pepe with bucatini. I'm pretty sure that's buco, what my mother used means hole in Italian. to make mac and cheese growing up, or mac and cheese casserole. Oh, I see. Bucatini. Okay. Of course, I, we didn't call it that back right, home. Right. You just called it <laughs> macaroni. Macaroni. Fair enough. Um, it's a catch-all term. Mm-hmm. I love pappardelle. Mm-hmm. That is probably my favorite. Yeah, I do too. We never had it growing up. I mean, I some Italian Americans might eat it. We didn't. 
we had like linguine, spaghetti, or ravioli. I also love fusilli. I don't even know what that. What is that? That's the one that I make my mac salad with. The spiral ones. Oh, okay. The spiral. Oh, yeah. See the little ridges? They catch the sauce. You still get the sauce and the pasta in one bite without all this, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a fan, but I understand the physics. (laughs) I love... I mean, gnocchi has has been my favorite forever. And there's another one that you like. One of those dumpling-looking ones. Ravs. Raviolis. Tortellini. You like raviolis? Yes, I do. I like the stuffed ones. Mm -hmm. I like tortellini, too. Fascinating. (laughs) Is there anything other than linguine and fettuccine that you hate? Yeah, the freaking bow ties. I hate them. A farfalle. I think that's what they're called, the butterflies. They use them in soups a lot, right? I don't know. I don't need them. Well, yeah, there's that. Our pasta segment. (laughs) My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is The Body Serve at linktree.com slash thebodyserve, where you can find everything related to us. Thanks to all the folks who bought bucket hats. Shola loved the way you were rocking it in New York. We have had a few people purchase doggy stuff, like uh, dog Mm -hmm. beds. Mm -hmm. No, not beds. Dog mats and dog blankets. Yes. And we will soon be launching, meaning Redbubble will soon make it available, (laughs) We'll soon be launching Pet Bowls. Ugh, amazing. Your dog can stare at our logo while they eat. They too can know that in their house, they <laughs> should be supporting women's tennis. <laughs> right, Vince? Who is sleeping with his tongue out right now? Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>